You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study, unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Jenny. I'm a Lutheran pastor and a video game nerd. And I'm Josh. I'm a video game nerd and an audio nerd and a comic book nerd and... Oh my god, my bullies were right. What's our topic this week, Josh? On this episode, we're tackling Satan. Great evil or overrated a-hole? So, grab a beer, a mocktail, a cup of coffee, or your beverage of choice, and join us as we explore how the Bible is more complicated and more fascinating than you might expect. Well, we're back. Again. We're back! Our, our listeners will not be able to tell the difference, but it has been a while since we recorded. It has been, because we uh, did a bunch right away, and then I said, yeah, I can edit these. I have plenty of time. And you did. Yeah. Well, we'll see. <laughs> so let's start it off, as we usually do, by our alcohol choices. Jenny, what are you drinking today? Uh, I'm drinking a maple brown ale. Ooh. It's really good. It's kind of like multi caramelly what about you um i am drinking it's from the original club tales it's a bahama mama in a can oh is it good it's really good what what's in a bahama mama i don't actually know uh deliciousness oh okay also flavors i assume yeah um gosh i'm gonna pull this up really quick because i (laughs) this should be part of the research before the episode josh i It's been a day. (laughs) It's been a month. It's been a year. All right. So a little bit of orange juice, pineapple juice, rum, coconut rum, and then some like grenadine. Ooh, that sounds good. Just a fruity, delicious drink. Uh, For the record, I think my dog is barking in the background and it might pick up, but hopefully not. Well, I don't hear it and Emma can do no wrong in my opinion. She is pretty cute. She gets away with a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, as Josh mentioned at the top... This episode, we are talking about Satan, the big bad, the ultimate villain of the Bible. Maybe, but uh, it's also a little more complicated than that. So as per usual, we're going to dive in and start deconstructing some stuff you might think you know, and then maybe replace it with some new stuff that you'll know once the episode is over. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot more to this topic than black and white as people usually see it. So I think this is a really good opportunity for us to learn some things and maybe just stop using the ultimate scapegoat. Yeah. Well, let's let's start, Josh. I'm going to give you a little, I think pop quiz is not the right word for it, but little preview question. When you hear the name Satan, what do you think of? Well, the first thing that would come to mind would always be you know, the devil, Lucifer, that devil thing that lives in, in hell with the pitchfork and the horns and the and the hooves. Right. The most terrifying and memorable villain of the Powerpuff Girls, just known as him. <laughs> yeah. Red guy, horns, tail, the whole the whole nine yards. Very evil kind of figure. Yeah. Great adversary that God and Jesus are up against. Right. Yeah, that kind of cosmic threat. And a lot of that is definitely 
there in different parts of the Bible, but it's also interesting that a lot of different terms and names and titles have kind of gotten rolled into one. So I heard you say like devil, Lucifer, Satan, those are all sort of lumped together into one figure, but depending on where you're looking in the Bible, not necessarily equated with one another. So we're uh, we're going to talk about it. Let's do it. I'm all for it. We don't even need to beat around the bush. I think people will be excited about this episode. I think so, too. You know, the Satanism one. It'll be really fun. Uh, well, I'll start with something that we actually talked about in one of our very first episodes, which was that wily snake in Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, the serpent who tempts Adam and Eve to eat the fruit and causes them to be cast out of the garden never says that that is Satan or the devil. It just says a serpent. Obviously, later tradition associated that with the the devil. And I talked in the Genesis episodes about how I thought Paradise Lost by Milton uh, really kind of cemented that in people's collective imagination that, oh, yeah, the snake was Satan like in disguise trying to ruin God's perfect creation. But that's not actually in the text. The other thing that I think we kind of have to talk about right at the outset is a little bit of vocabulary. We use these terms Satan, devil, deceiver, adversary. We use them all kind of interchangeably. But there are different words in Hebrew and Greek that underlie all of those terms and are not always used interchangeably. So in the New Testament, you'll often see uh, the Greek word diabolos, which is like diablo, right? So the same kind of root as when we think about devils. So that, that kind of gets translated as devil. So Jesus is tempted by the devil in three of the Gospels. And in the Hebrew Bible, we have a Hebrew word, hasatan. So in Hebrew, ha-satan, ha mean, is the, the definite article. It means the. And satan is obviously where we get the word Satan. But it's not quite what we think of when we think of Satan. And it's not actually a proper name the way that we use it when we talk about Satan, like with a capital S. In Hebrew, satan means adversary. And it actually is used in a number of different ways. So I did a little bit of looking, and there are a bunch of places where the word Satan is used to just mean adversaries in sort of a mundane sense, right? That like maybe there's two armies going up against each other. And so the enemy is described as the adversaries, as in the Satan of whoever is writing the story. So you see that in First and Second Samuel, you see it in Kings, a couple of other places similarly. One of my favorite examples of where the word Satan shows up, and it is not translated as Satan proper noun, is actually a reference that we use in the outro of our podcast, which is the story of Balaam and his ass, or Balaam. I'm not quite sure how you're supposed to pronounce it. Basically, this is a story from Numbers chapter 22. This guy named Balaam or Balaam is walking down the road riding a donkey and 
God is really irritated and God sends an angel to talk to Balaam, but Balaam can't see the angel. And the angel is standing right in the middle of the road and the donkey can see it. And so the donkey stops and then Balaam gets really angry and he tries to like force the donkey to keep walking, but it won't. It refuses because it doesn't want to like walk into this angel. And then finally, God lets the donkey talk and the donkey says, what have I done to you that you're like beating me? Don't Can't you tell that God is trying to talk to you right now? And the word Satan or adversary is actually used there to describe the angel, like God's messenger who is standing in the way of Balaam and his donkey uh, is an adversary. And that word is Satan. Huh. So that's just an example of like how this word is used in Hebrew. And it doesn't always mean like the primordial force of evil. I have a few thoughts on that because that's really interesting. I didn't realize that it's called, you know, the adversary was the angel. First things first, I really went with the outro. I went on your pronunciation, so I really hope that was right. I've definitely heard it both ways. I think Balaam is sort of the like Anglicanized version and maybe in Hebrew it would be like Balaam, but if you say Balaam, people like don't necessarily know what you're talking about. Fair enough. Also, I think this is uh, obviously something that we need to pay attention when an animal tells us that it just stops and stares at nothing. Like, hey, maybe we should uh, reflect on this and maybe not get upset when your dog's staring at a corner in the middle of the night and starts barking, which is right terrifying. Yeah, I know you, uh, you also have cats, as do I. And sometimes when they're just like staring really intently at like a blank spot on the wall and you're like, what the hell can you see? that I can't. Probably ghosts. You never know. Could be angels. Yeah. So uh, maybe that is an opportunity to stop and be like, okay, maybe I should reflect on what's going on in my life that uh, maybe I need to uh, apologize for. Maybe I just need to refocus things. Maybe it's just a sign. We'll go with that. Mm, yeah. Don't, don't beat your donkey if it's not doing what you want, because God might make that donkey talk and embarrass you. Also, can we point out the fact that if you know, let's say a donkey or you as a person would see what the Bible described as an angel, you wouldn't move from that spot either. Right. These are the biblically accurate angels, not like pretty androgynous white people with big flowy wings. It's like wheels upon wheels and tons of eyeballs. Horrifying that was yeah. in our standards. Probably beautiful to themselves, which is all that matters. And and probably beautiful in the eyes of God. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In the book of Isaiah, this is sort of tangentially related to our Satan discussion. Isaiah sees God in the temple, and there are these seraphim flying around, right? And seraphim are a, a type of angel. But the root of that word seraph in Hebrew does actually mean serpent. It's not the same word that is used for the serpent back in Genesis. But basically what Isaiah sees is all of these like snakes flying around and praising God. And that's like what the seraphim are, which is so different from like any like typical depiction of angels. Like they're not usually flying snakes, but flying snakes are very cool. That sounds terrifying. I'm into it. I know <laughs> that you love your snack and... I, yep, that doesn't seem like a comforting thing to me. 
I don't think it's meant to be comforting. I do think it's meant to be like awe-inspiring. It would inspire me to do something. <laughs> Probably have to change my pants. So we'll we'll kind of come back around to talking about the devil in the New Testament, but I still want to stay on this Satan thing for a little bit longer. In Hebrew, Satan, which we've said is like accuser, it often takes on a legal kind of connotation. So if you think of like in a courtroom that you would have an accuser, you would have somebody who is like bringing charges, maybe like a prosecutor or something like that. That is part of the flavor of the Hebrew word Satan. So there's an example in Psalm 109 where it uses the Hebrew word Satan in this kind of legalistic courtroom imagery. So it's not some evil supernatural being, but it's like if you're being sued or you're being taken to court or you're being charged, that that is the opponent that you're dealing with, this accuser. And again, it's that same word, Satan, which you can think of as being like lowercase instead of the proper name, Satan. And Understanding that nuance is really important when we talk about one of the most kind of significant passages in the Hebrew Bible when it comes to Satan, which is the beginning of the book of Job. Josh, I know you just revisited the beginning of the book of Job. Tell us all about it. Holy crap. <laughs> like, again, you forget things when you don't, you know, read them or study them. I don't understand. I don't want to say something super offensive, so I'm going to backtrack myself. You you could say it. You know, Satan did a lot of not great things to Job, but God kind of egged him on. God starts it. Yeah. So let's get started. Here's a quick overview of what I took from the first two chapters of Job. Job's good working dude. Works hard loves God, very devoted, has a really great family. They all work hard. They praise God. They have this really flourishing, I don't want to say empire, but they have this flourishing livestock, yeah. farming life. And it's, you know, they're thankful for it and they work hard for it. And God's basically like, look at all my creation. Um, they're great. And Satan's kind of like, well, yeah, but if if you lean on them, basically they're gonna they're gonna like split. They're gonna be like, nah, I'm not gonna praise you. Look what you let happen to me. Mm -hmm. And God's like, hey, you know what? Fine, go see what happens to Job. I guarantee you he's fine. Yeah. So Job loses basically everything. Like his livestock is dead. His family dies because the house collapses on his children, and he's just basically left. His wife's still there, but through it all he's still faithful and he still praises god for everything that he has had and everything he still has which in itself is pretty impressive and confusing because that's that takes a lot of dedication but then it gets worse and i can't remember the specifics but basically satan and god are conversing and satan's like yeah but if you push him any harder he's gonna snap and I know Job gets like boils and like just horrible things again, and he's still faithful. Yeah, I think for sure we could do a whole episode on the book of Job because it is so heavy, like emotionally and theologically. 
but yeah, it's really interesting that Job, which I, I should say, first of all, Job is not meant to be literal history. The book starts with this kind of formulaic phrase, which is, in the land of Uz, there once was a man by the name of Job. And this formula is kind of like if you started off a story with like once upon a time, we just know that that means you're about to hear a fairy tale, right? Because fairy tales start with once upon a time. And Job is the same kind of thing. It's clearly signaling that like this is a fable, but that doesn't make it less uncomfortable because Job is very faithful, as you said, and he has all these good things. And God is the one who instigates this kind of wager because God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And that's when Satan's like, well, yeah, he he loves you. He's loyal to you because he has good things. But if you take away these good things, he's going to curse you. And that sort of sets the whole book in motion. Obviously, we could talk for a long time about that. But today we're talking about Satan. And so the role that Satan plays in this story is pretty important, obviously. But Satan in the book of Job is not that red devil with horns and a pitchfork who's like coming around to cause trouble. Satan is actually like part of God's heavenly court, right? Like part of God's entourage or whatever. And specifically, Satan has this role of being an adversary, of being like a prosecuting attorney, right? Satan is like the DA of God's court. And so Satan is the one who says like, well, yeah, if you take away the good things that Job has, he's going to turn on you. It's not a cosmic like good versus evil thing. It's more of this kind of legal, almost courtroom drama that Satan is like the prosecuting attorney within God's court. Which is, you know, very awkward to what that traditional belief that you have this understanding that some people have that Lucifer or Satan was an angel cast out. But it's really, you know, if you think about it more, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, is, is that why he was created was to, I guess, question like, OK, we're doing this. But is this really the best way forward? Yeah. And that sort of broader tradition about like Lucifer was one of God's angels and rebelled and was cast out and then became Satan. Like that whole narrative as such is not in the Bible. There are sort of bits and pieces of it. But the way that we imagine the whole narrative, like I said, I really think it comes from things like Paradise Lost, where you actually see, oh, Satan has been cast out of heaven, and now he's down in hell, and now he's going to, you know, raise a, an army and trick Adam and Eve and, like, cause all this trouble. And all of that is really outside of scripture itself. It's sort of later interpretation that gets put together. But we do get a, f a couple of those pieces when we look at the New Testament and the way that the devil is described. By the time we get to the New Testament, the devil and Satan are pretty much treated as one and the same. Although there are devils, plural, so devils are maybe sort of a broader category, and then Satan is like the big bad. 
But yeah, so we have plenty of examples of devil being equated with Satan in the New Testament. Just a couple of examples that that I found in my like reading up on this. We're probably familiar with the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. In Luke, Jesus is tempted by the devil. In Mark, he's tempted by Satan. And Matthew uses both the devil and the tempter. So if you look across the Gospels, they're kind of all telling the same story, but they're using different terms kind of interchangeably. So you get devil and Satan being treated equivalently. And then in some of the other New Testament books, you see the devil and Satan just absolutely being lumped together, right? They're two names for the same entity. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 20, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So the devil and Satan are one and the same by the time we get to these uh, New Testament writings. So can I ask, like, why the switch, where the switch came in that the separate to like, oh, no, they're just the same. I think some of it is linguistic, right? That like Satan comes from a Hebrew word, Satan. Devil comes from a Greek word, diabolos. And then you've got Christianity, which is drawing from both languages and and from Hebrew theological tradition as well as from Greek influences. And so at some point in the New Testament period, they're like, yeah, these are one and the same, right? It's just Hebrew word and a Greek word for the same thing. But some of it also is just that the understanding of Satan really evolved over the course of time, that the way Satan was viewed when the book of Job was written is very different from the understanding by the time you get to the New Testament um, and and Jesus and the Gospels being written. Okay. It kind of makes sense. And it kind of, you know, that Christianity does have that Greek background. It makes you wonder what was referenced or adopted from, like, Hades, the god of the underworld, with Greek right. mythology. Like, what is that where, you know, the idea of hell being down below, is that where that came from? You know, those outside sources that are like, well, yeah, but that makes sense. We'll just kind of, you know, use that to explain it so people kind of get it. And then that just kind of made people think that that's how it is. Yeah, a lot of those different traditions were sort of woven together. You know, the Hebrew Bible has this concept of Sheol, which you see sometimes in like the Psalms that like when you die, you go down to Sheol and Sheol is kind of like this neutral place. Like it's not a place of punishment. The idea of hell as being like fire and suffering and torment that comes around by the New Testament period, and I think that did have some influence from some of these other, like, Greek and Roman understandings of the the afterlife or, like, the world beyond this sort of plane of existence. And that makes sense, yeah. I was looking at that up, and it was talking about, you know, on Matthew, it was mentioned, the unquenchable fire, and then in Mark, it was talked about hell or hellfire in some in the English versions, at least. Yeah, yeah. So when we look at this language about the devil or Satan in the New Testament, I think there is sort of two overarching categories. The first one is like the devil, like capital T, capital D, 
who is the the commander of all the cosmic forces that are opposed to God. And this is especially like a major point in the book of Revelation. And we can kind of come back around to that. The other way that you see the word devil especially used is more generally as like lowercase d devils, that devils are anything that is opposed to to God. So for example, Jesus, when he talks about being betrayed in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, did I not choose you, the 12, the 12 disciples, yet one of you is a devil, referring to Judas. I also found it really interesting. There are two places in the letters. So in 1 Timothy and Titus, there is a warning specifically for women because, you know, you got to have a little misogyny in your New Testament. What? The Bible um, doesn't ever say preach about just patriarchy. Get out of here. I know. It's shocking. Uh, <laughs> but both of these letters warn women. And the translation that I read said slanderers, right? So women need to take care not to be slanderers. But the word in Greek is literally diabolos, devils. So these letters are saying like, hey, women, as you're like, you know, being respectful and modest and all these other expectations that are placed on women, it also says like, also don't be devils. And then translators have said, like, that probably doesn't mean devils in the, like, pitchfork kind of sense, but slanderers. Uh, so it's more about behavior. And I think you said earlier that anybody can be called a devil if they're not. Mm -hmm. like. And I think I read this, too, when I was researching that, like, you know, a devil could be called anybody that doesn't necessarily follow or believe these precise teachings that you do. And I'm sorry if you guys hear my pup in the background. I'm sure the neighbor is moving in because they've been doing a lot of work and he is just going nuts. So I apologize now if you're hearing him. <laughs> yeah, so anybody could be a devil if they don't follow like this code that you believe in, in your opinion, they could be. Right. And, and kind of bigger picture, I think it's like a devil could be anyone that is opposed to God's will. Now, obviously, we have to ask, like, who gets to decide what God's will is and, like, who's with it and who's against it. But in terms of this sort of cosmic good versus evil conflict, if you are on the side that is opposed to God, the New Testament talks about like, well, you're the children of the evil one or uh, children of the devil. In First John, there's that dichotomy where it says like some people are children of God and some are children of the devil. So it's setting up this this real clear opposition of like, which side are you on? And that like, totally comes to its fullest presentation in Revelation, where this cosmic conflict is actually like laid out for the author of Revelation, John, uh, to see. I mean, I have my own opinions on Revelation as a book and as mm -hmm. to a T it is. And, I, you know, I don't necessarily <clears throat> personally, I don't think Revelation is this like prediction of like hell on earth and all that. I think it's it's talking about the times that those early Christians were living in when they were persecuted, not like they, yeah, when they were persecuted and being murdered and they had to write everything in code so that if they did get found out, like no one would understand 
that they were talking about the rulers of the land and they wouldn't get right. massacred and all that. Yeah, I totally agree. And and like Job, I mean, Revelation is a book that we could do a really deep dive on and maybe we will down the line. But I totally agree with you. Don't read Revelation as a roadmap to the apocalypse. It is a highly symbolic book. Um, and, you know, pointed out 666, not the sign of the devil. It was basically the sign of Nero, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's why they used it because they wanted to say, oh, this horrible ruler. But you can't say like, hey, Nero's an asshole. Like, what's going to happen to you? You're right. going to get murdered. Yeah. Not in a nice way either. I know that's probably, well, there's no nice ways, but you're not going to be quick and easy. It's going to be horrible. So codes, lots of codes. Lots of coded language, lots of symbolic language for sure. One of the themes in Revelation, which I think like people have, even if you don't know much about Revelation, like this is a pretty easy theme to pick up on, is this cosmic battle. So the forces of God being lined up against the forces of Satan and the devil and all the powers that oppose God, which like you said, for the, the New Testament period, that very much meant Rome. Like the Roman Empire was opposed to God and God's people. And so they are part of this whole kind of cosmic conflict. But for Revelation, like the things that are happening on our plane of existence, right? So like Christians being persecuted and, you know, being fed to the lions and martyred and stuff, that is all one theater of a war that is happening on a cosmic scale. So the things that we can see and experience if we were like Christians in the first and second century, that's only one piece of a much bigger conflict where it's ultimately God versus evil. And part of the point of Revelation is to say, like, God's going to win. Like, it's going to be very bad but ultimately, God is going to triumph over all of these other forces. And Satan or the devil is sort of the iconic leader that represents all of those, those bad forces. Absolutely. So we, uh, we did talk a little bit about kind of this uh, tradition about Lucifer being cast out from heaven. Um, and Jesus, in a couple of places in the Gospels, says, like, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. So we do have that kind of imagery of, like, a fall. And the other place where that shows up is in Revelation, which I think is interesting because Revelation is seen as being visions about the future or, like, maybe about present events, but being interpreted in light of, like, this cosmic battle. And so this idea of like a war in heaven and this this dragon being Satan who's cast out of heaven, um, that all shows up in Revelation 12. So that's not something that's described earlier in the Bible as like, oh, this happened before human beings were created, which is the way that Milton tells it in Paradise Lost. But actually, like, this is the cosmic battle that we are engaged in now and that like will be sort of the end of the story. Uh, so I, I've always thought it was kind of weird that we have these notions about like, oh, 
this is where Satan came from back in primordial history, but like that's not at all uh, what Revelation is actually describing. Yeah, because from my understanding was that, you know, Lucifer was cast out of heaven because uh, Lucifer questioned God about like, why are we giving humans such preferential treatment? Mm-hmm. As angels, they were more loyal. They were more obedient. They were more loving to God. But God still like favored the humans, and that is what ultimately led to that big dispute where mm-hmm. Lucifer was cast out. That's my understanding, at least. I could be wrong. It's happened once. Only once. Only once. That whole tradition, I think, is familiar to a lot of people, and it has kind of become like popular culture. But it's not... Is not in the Bible, which I find really interesting. That is something that arose later. And actually, the name Lucifer comes from Greco-Roman mythology. So yeah, kind of going back to my point earlier where it was about, you know, did the hell and the underworld from Hades, like, is that twisted into that old belief system and that old religion and how... I think all religions kind of, I don't want to say steal from each other, but have that similar path. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of like things getting merged and you're maybe adopting traditions that are in the culture around you, or maybe you're kind of repurposing traditions that are in the culture around you. There's certainly a lot of that that happens in Christianity, like having a tree at Christmas time. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we should do that. Like that came from Germanic culture. But a lot of these things sort of get absorbed and integrated into Christian tradition and practice very much after the fact. Um, And as we continue our discussion, I'm actually looking at the episode notes now that you put so much time into that I completely forgot because I just got so engrossed. (laughs) I think a really popular thing in Christian circles is, you know, the discussion about the armor of God. Mm. And it talks about, you know, we have to the stand against the wiles of the devil. So that's kind of going back to earlier when we were talking about, you know, the instances where the devil and all that's mentioned. So that's from Ephesians, according to your notes. Yes. Ephesians chapter six. That's definitely one of those things that I feel like came up a lot in like confirmation and youth group of like, we're going to put on the armor of God because it's a cool image. Like, it really is. And as a kid, it worked. Like, for me, it worked. Like, I was all about, like, the breastplate of righteousness, the... Yeah. Can't even remember anymore now. But, yeah, like... The belt of truth. As for shoes, uh, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace and the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. It's all very dramatic. It makes you feel like a superhero, like Batman. Like, you're putting on this awesome, cool outfit. Right. Or like something out of Lord of the Rings where it's like, take this helmet of salvation. (sighs) Yeah, it worked. I remember vacation Bible school, like that coming up and being like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And it's it's definitely one of those passages that I think does have a lot of familiarity to people. And it's interesting, like Ephesians is deliberately using this sort of like war type of language, right? Armor and shield and helmet and sword and all of that. But if you like really look at what those things are, they're not very violent or they're not very aggressive, right? That like 
what you're going to have to protect you is the belt of truth, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. And so it's really like these things that are going to kind of keep you in your own faith and your own integrity to stand up against these like cosmic forces that want to destroy you. So it's it's interesting because it's actually less of a kind of martial image than it might at first appear. Yeah, a lot of people see it as like, oh yeah, I have to prep for this giant war. And it, it, it is, it's more like a defensive stance, a defensive mm-hmm. way for you. As our intro, you know, being video game nerds, we totally understand that. It's more like, hey, I'm not gonna attack, but I need to be ready and protect myself. And to just take it like to another nerdy level, Josh is well aware that I am a huge fan of Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman, like nowadays, you see Wonder Woman with a sword a lot, but her initial conception was only defensive things. Like she has the bracers that could block bullets, Because at the time that Wonder Woman was created, there was sort of this concern and this like moral anxiety about, oh my gosh, there are all these comics which just have tons of guns and tons of violence. And the guy who created Wonder Woman was like, no, like her strength is in protecting. And so she has like a way to deflect bullets and she has a lasso that makes people tell the truth. And so like none of it was aggressive none of it was like i'm gonna strike the first blow it's always defensive which i think is cool it's one of the reasons i like wonder woman that is a really good point and that's you know that's honestly how i think as a christian we're supposed to live our life like we're supposed to be i don't want to say defensive but we're supposed to you know protect ourselves and just question that but we're not supposed to like attack one another because they might believe something different mm-hmm. and we can see that i mean like I'm all for melding Wonder Woman into our, like, Christian theology. But, you know, we see that in the the Gospels, too, that Jesus says, like, turn the other cheek. And when he's about to be arrested and literally murdered, Peter tries to cut off. uh, He, like, draws a sword and he cuts off the ear of the slave. And Jesus is like, don't do that. Like, put your weapons away. That is not what it means to, like, follow Jesus. And so, yeah, it's a very different kind of heroism, I guess. So the moral of the story here is don't be like Satan. Be like Wonder Woman. I think that's a good example for everybody. Always try to be more like Wonder Woman. It's a pretty good conclusion, right? I think so. But if we're going to get into, like, Christ imageries in comic books, like, come on. Superman is the Christ figure in comic books, but we're not going to get in that today because that's way too much effort. Josh and I are going to have to do an episode where we just argue about Wonder Woman and Superman in theological terms. And for those of you who don't know, my wife was very gracious when we got married and we had a Superman themed wedding. So that's where I stand up. (laughs) So cute. But I kind of wanted to finish things up today I know, you know, people think if you think like the temple of Satan, the satanic temple, excuse me, what's the what what comes to mind with that, Jenny? Uh, I think about, oh, my gosh, I think about like the Church of Satan nowadays and how they're like kind of pulling these like stunts about 
testing First Amendment protections and saying like, well, our religion says that abortion should be freely available. And honestly, respect. Right. So in my world religions class I took in college, I had to write a paper about a religion. And I was feeling like a smart ass that semester. So I wrote it about Satanism, which was, you know, don't ask me to remember anything because that was a long time ago kind of age myself a little bit but i did pull up the satanic temple website and yeah as you said like the first thing that you can click on is abortion clinic fundraiser they talk about they the about us statement is the mission is to encourage benevolence and empathy reject tyrannical authority advocate practical common sense oppose injustice and undertake noble pursuits and i i like struggle with this because i absolutely believe that people who are atheists or people who are Satanists, like, can be just as moral and ethical. Like, I have no, no objections to that. But there is a part of me that's like, oh, I don't know how I feel about, like, calling on Satan or, like, using that specific language. Like, it does make me feel a little uh, twitchy. And that's definitely, like, a me thing, not a them thing. But it really gets to the heart of, like, this whole episode, which is what do you think Satan represents? Yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah, and going back to your comment earlier about, you know, atheists can be good people and all that. Like, you know, I worked for a major coffee company for a while. The Sunday mm-hmm, after mm-hmm. church crowd yep. was terrible. They were some of the rudest shortest meanest people out there which was just it's really confusing still to this day like you just got out of a church like supposed to be like the most refreshing time of your week you heard the gospel you're ready to go right you're ready to go be mean to a service employee like i that's just me bitching it's not that doesn't have anything to do with the episode that's just me remembering traumatic events but whatever yeah Who's, whose side are you on, Christians? Right? It's pretty... That's a pretty ridiculous question that we have to ask. Mm-hmm. Actions. Actions. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Josh. This is a good conversation. I feel like every time we record, we come up with, like, three more episode ideas. So this might go on forever, but that's okay. Yeah, I really enjoyed it i i I feel like we were all over the place because this is such a big topic and i feel like we Mm -hmm. all we both had our interests that we were like oh but what about this and so i hope everyone was enjoyed the journey with us because that's really what it was for us as well yeah definitely if you have any questions or you'd like to suggest an episode idea you can find our email in the episode description and thank you so much for listening to irreverent bible talk Ooh, i don't know if you heard that big thunderclap that just no got... i did not there it is another one like whoop well i pissed god off now thanks <laughs> thanks satan i'll leave this part in thanks for listening i like it thanks for listening to a reverend bible talk you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash irreverent bible and remember just like balaam and his donkey learned sometimes even god communicates through a talking ass